from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics and your host for today's show on the future. While we are always forward-facing here at Women at Work, trying to aim high and build our way to a more inclusive, diverse working world, today's guest, Amy Webb, is actually a professional futurist. She's also the author of the newly released book, The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. Amy puts to use her astonishing understanding of technology, social science, and media to systematically explore predictions and possibilities. Her clients include Fortune 500 and Global 100 companies, government agencies, large nonprofits, universities, and startups, all of whom need help answering that question, what is the future of X? Fill in the blank. In the near future, our hour or so together, we get to learn from Amy how her career took shape, what her work entails, and how to better understand the implications of things like the election, technology, and social media for the future of women at work. If you have questions for either of us, please do call. We'd love to have you join in the conversation. We can be reached at 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or if you want to write to us because you're someplace where you can't talk, you can send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Allie is sitting in the booth today because Patty's homesick. We hope you feel better, Patty. Um, so, you know, keep Allie busy. She'll get her email. She'll bring them in. I'll get to say hello. It'll all be great. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to get started. I just want to remind you, Amy Webb, our guest today, a futurist, the founder of the Future Today Institute, and author of The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. I want to give you a little background on Amy because she's really incredible. Amy's research fo- focuses on how technology transforms the way we live, work, and govern. And she shares her insights across society in a range of ways. As a tech columnist and a contributing editor at Inc. Magazine, teaching on the future of journalism at Columbia, or teaching forecasting at NYU's Stern School of Business. She was a delegate on the former U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission and served as the Aspen Institute's dialogue on libraries to determine the actual future of libraries. And that's not even a complete list. It's no wonder that she was recently designated as one of Forbes' five women changing the world. As if that's not enough, she sits on a number of boards and is the author of Data, a love story, and has a related TED Talk that's been viewed by more than four million times and been translated into to 31 languages. She's also a classically trained clarinetist, fluent in Japanese, and a retired first-degree black belt in Aikido. So in other words, we've got a true rock star as our guest on the show today. So with that, let me say welcome to Amy Webb. We're thrilled to have you on Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. So Amy, would you help translate for us what a futurist really is and how you became one? Sure. So I think, um, you know, the job title futurist is suddenly in vogue again and uh it would be you know it, it's it's a job of the moment because we are sitting on the precipice of so many new technologies and sciences <clears throat> but it's actually an academic discipline that goes back over a hundred years um futurism as an academic discipline is multifaceted so it's the intersection of the hard hard and soft sciences mm-hmm. um there, there are a few places where you can get a degree in futurism, um, but, but uh, most people who do this professionally, um, uh, just because there, there hasn't been a degree so far, <laughs> we, we have instead studied things like 
you know, we have backgrounds in statistics and game theory and economics and anthropology. Um, and, you know, most of us who do this professionally have models that we have developed. And in order for us to forecast the future, that's, that's our purpose, um, what we do is use uh, evidence and data and model out likely um, future scenarios using probabilities. And it, it, that helps organizations um, with their strategy. So that there's a, there is a distinction between what I do as a professional futurist and what um, some folks who are, because again, like the job is, is suddenly cool again. Right. Um, there are a lot of people who are sort of making keynote speeches and these like ridiculous prognostications and they're standing on stages all over the place. And they tend to be men, um, you know, calling themselves futurists and, and making these wild predictions. Um, that, that is not what a professional futurist does. In fact, a professional futurist wouldn't even use the word prediction. So it's a, there's, a, there's a pretty clear um, distinction. So while it's a field that has, granted, the sexy title, um, the nomenclature is not inappropriate, but it actually is about that kind of really long-range, wide-view planning that right. has to be informed by what's happened before and has to factor in um, the options of what may or may not happen going forward based on a, a wide array of possible intersections. That's right. So we, you know, we practice uh, what I call elastic thinking. So, you know, most people, <clears throat> because I'm a futurist, most people want to know how soon the future is, right? <laughs> so if we're talking about something like the future of self-driving cars, everybody wants to know when. Um, and, the, and the reality is that the future of autonomous vehicles is dependent upon technology and the, the strength of the businesses that are in the ecosystem. But it's also, it's also very, very dependent upon things like our newly elected Congress mm -hmm. and their capricious attitude <laughs> towards regulation um, and our new president-elect and his business relationships with you know, various countries overseas, um, you know, which, you know, he continues to antagonize China. A lot of our components are made in China. China may decide that they're done doing business with us in some way or another, you know, and, and through this sort of strange connection of dots, um, these external factors could have a very dramatic impact on Ford's near-term five-year plan to roll out a self-driving fleet. So our job is to look at all of these different internal and external factors as we think through the evolution of a technology, um, and in my case, a technology, but there are futurists that look at other, other it, fields It sounds well. to me like this is um, a practice that should be going on at the highest levels of government. Is there an organization within the U.S. government to help inform decision makers? You know, there used to be. So in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, we, we had something called the Office of Technology Assessment, and it was staffed with, you know, to the extent that anybody can be nonpartisan, it was staffed with nonpartisan um, scientists and technologists and futurists. And their role as professional researchers was to do the work that they would normally do, but as a public servant, and then to make recommendations to again, like nonpartisan, non you know, nonpartisan recommendations where tech, the technology and science had been depoliticized, um, and to educate the people in our government who make decisions. Um, that entire office w 
when it was around, you know, they, they created, they, they wrote more than 700 actionable white papers. I mean, they were very, very active. It was such a success <clears throat> that the United States OTA became the gold standard worldwide. And in fact, there were copycats erected in countries all over the world. When and, you, I want to go back for a second. When you sure. talk about it, it was so successful. What made them successful? Was it the quantity of the white papers, the quality, um, or the way they impacted action? You know, I think it was uh, the rubric. So I, I, think it, I think it was a structural thing. Um, so part of this was they had a clear line to, you know, there, there was a clear pathway to educate the various people in government who make decisions and write policy. And those people were also open and receptive to the information. So that's a critical partnership. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, and the, and the political climate, uh, the, so this is right before um, Newt Gingrich became the speaker and, and a lot changed. And in fact, it was Gingrich when he was in office who defunded the OTA um, and left us with this vacuum. And and this is a really this is analogous to a, to what we're facing today, but also to what I think a lot of businesses face, and that is that when you don't have somebody whose sole responsibility it is to do near and long range planning, mm-hmm. um, using data and evidence and the tools of a futurist, you wind up with problems that um, you know be, become real and unwieldy in the present. Um, and the best example of that is last year. Uh, after the San Bernardino shootings, um, you know, the FBI and Apple got into a mm-hmm. sort of public debate about jailbreaking an iPhone. And the thing is, you know, the reason that that came to such a, a dramatic, um, the, way, the way that that dramatic unfolded so dramatically was directly tied to the fact that we no longer have an OTA. It's because we didn't have any regulations or norms or standards uh, there were no discussions happening. And so you wind up with technology that easily becomes politicized. That's a very, very dangerous position for us all to be in. And uh, also dangerous. politicized around something that was arguably foreseeable, that That's there right. would become a point well, where the information on our personal devices would be seen as nationally important evidence. I mean, yeah. And so I think if anybody stopped to reflect, right, um, the, the, I'm, I'm headed off to CES tomorrow um, <laughs> to talk about the future. One of the big themes from CES this year is voice-based interfaces, right? So, so your Alexas and Google Homes mm-hmm. and LG's devices. Right. So it's obvious to anybody who would stop and reflect that at some point privacy, you know, can, my, can, my, can Alexa take the stand, you know, if something happens to somebody? Or can Alexa plead the fifth? And explain right? to us what Alexa is. That's right. But, oh, sorry. Um, so Alexa is, is an ex, you know, one of the new um, voice-based uh, interfaces. It's a black canister. There's three different models. Um, and it's voice-activated. So you say, Alexa, tell me the weather, play the song, order me. Like Siri. You know, whatever. Very similar to Siri. Much more powerful, much smarter. Um, but it is always listening. So... Um, by design. And more and more of our devices will move in that direction. But again, we don't have any, not only do we not have case law, but we don't have any conversation around, um, can can Alexa be the cause of self-incrimination if somebody gets into trouble? Uh, These these are, and and that's 
small potatoes, right? We are sitting on the precipice of AI, of mm-hmm. CRISPR and genetic, uh, you know, modification of, of all different kinds of things. We don't have any, we really don't have any conversation as a nation around any of these things. And, and conversation is different than regulation. I'm not in favor of rushing to regulate things. But in the absence of that conversation, what winds up happening is that leaders are forced to make decisions under duress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a horrible, uh, th- you know, th- that's horrible. <laughs> it sounds like it, it takes a, a dynamic that we see up close in what feels like long-term planning to organizations, but in the context of um, futurists, it's really short-term stuff of operating day-to-day. And if we don't start thinking, having conversations about where we're at risk, what we're trying to accomplish, what is going well, what our most important values are, what new tools we can bring in to fuel our work, we're going to wind up hitting kind of a wall or an emergency where something goes wrong or we're caught short on changes that we have to be prepared for. That's that's right. And and part of the problem is that we are all pressed for time. And so the mere act of reading the trades or reading about a new technology, you know, can make it feel as though you've invested enough critical thought into you know, into planning. But, but doing, you know, using the tools of a futurist, it's not difficult. It's just a matter of incorporating them into your daily routine. And it's absolutely essential um, because reading about technology is not the same thing as doing real, honest, long-term planning. And, um, and, and like you were a, saying, yeah. the conversations to me seem critically important. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of strategic planning. It's been a, a thread throughout my career. And I find that every good strategic plan is really begun with and fueled by ongoing dialogue that brings in multiple perspectives, perspectives of people that wouldn't normally be in the same room. Now, that's right. But a lot of people like to skip straight to what what is step four in my methodology, (laughs) right? um, which is scenario planning. So oftentimes, uh, you know, I will will be asked to attend a meeting or whatever. You know, a lot of companies... Will, ha- will kick off their strategic planning with these sort of like, let's imagine that it's 10 years from now. Let's imagine that it's 20 years from now. And they go through, they bring out the Post-it notes and there's fun activities and you draw and you doodle and you, <laughs> right. you come up with all this stuff. The problem is you've skipped you know, several critical, critical steps before you get to that point. Um, and when you do something like that, and you, you know, especially when that becomes the, the foundation for your 10-year or 5-year strategic plan, um, you are setting yourself up for failure. So the things that have to happen before you get to that point involve um, research and pattern recognition, looking in places that you would normally not look. This is not about focus grouping. This is a completely different mm-hmm. way of structuring thought. Um, you know, and it's a it's a common mistake that we see many of our clients make before we start working with them. Um, a, a friend of mine who works at a very, very large foundation um, thought that it would be fun for me to read. They, they just kicked off their own strategic planning and, and uh, wanted me to come and, like, help them make scenarios. <laughs> and I said, I'd love to do that. You are not ready to do, to do that yet. Right. Um, that's the fun part where everybody imagines what a crazy future might look like but you are in no position to do that. You, you've skipped all of the other drudgery that comes before it. <laughs> right. Uh, and so what does that drudgery you know, include? 
Drudgery is a strong word. Um, but what's the work that gets you ready to start dreaming? Sure. So, so the, um, you know, the work, so again, like futurists have lots of different models and tools. The one that I have been developing for the past 11 years um, has six steps. The first three steps are, are about identifying what. The, the fourth step uh, is, I'm sorry, the scenarios are step five. The fourth step is about identifying when. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth and sixth steps are what do you do about it. You can't get to the what do you do about it, which is the scenario planning, before you've done everything else. So it starts with um, trying to understand and identify trends. When, I, when a futurist uses the word trend, it, it means something quite different than it does to everybody else. So a trend for us is not a shiny object. Right. Um, a trend is a is a manifestation of significant change within how we act, uh, how we interact with different technology. It uh, it usually evolves as it, as it emerges. So something is typically not a trend all of a sudden and then goes away. Um, anyhow, so so in order to identify those trends, which become the hallmark for understanding what what it is that could come next, um, you have to look for unusual suspects. So you start off at the fringe. Um, you know, I look at a lot of pre-publication academic papers. I'm talking to people who are in the trenches tinkering. Um, and, and again, you're, you're not just looking within a silo. So if you're trying to figure out what's the future of, I don't know, food or something, um, you have to look at lots of places outside of that. So we have we you have to look at agriculture and culture yeah, and I mean, cuisine we have, we and have production. Like categories that work well across all different sectors. Mm-hmm. But you do have to consider what's happening with things like demographics and, you know, politics and government, um, you know, and wealth distribution. So you look in all these different areas and you create in the first step what's called a fringe sketch. Um, the second, which sort of just sets you up, it gets you to zero. So this is the lay of the land. These are, and, and what it does is it surfaces all the information that you would have otherwise overlooked. This is a, again, like any business who is jumping ahead to strategy without doing this is being completely irresponsible. Because they're planning around something they don't understand. That's right. And can't even see. By the way, the person we can't see but can hear is Amy Webb, who is a professional futurist and author of the newly released book, The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. Amy, I noticed that central to your work is technology. Is how, what percentage, not what percentage, but in the work that futurists do, is everyone working on technology or for some is a component but not central? You know, for me, it is, it is the central component of what I do because from my vantage point, um, science and technology are the engine driving innovation forward mm-hmm. um, and they are completely intertwined in everything. Um, there are certainly futurists whose focus uh, is not as grounded in technology, so people who look at um, who are looking at big structural change within culture or society, uh, you know. So, so not every single futurist is as um, focused on technology as I am. Yet, it seems like all futurists and the practice of trying to plan for the future requires an interdisciplinary lens and practice. That's right. And your background is particularly interesting in this regard. Um, You've done a hundred different amazing things, but in particular, you're classically trained. You've steeped in other cultures and languages. Um, How did you also um, develop this astonishingly deep and nuanced understanding of technology? Well, um, 
I think probably that goes back to my mother who was a teacher and, um, you know, I'm of the age, there, there was a, my, my demographic, I'm not quite, I'm sort of in between Gen X and millennials, um, but I think we were on the tail end of all that testing that happened when, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my mom, being a teacher, knowing my test scores, uh, sought to stimulate me uh, with lots of different things and stuff and classes. Um, and I think part of my uh, thirst for new experiences and new knowledge comes probably from a childhood that was full of that. Um, and then I also had a computer at home when I was in second grade. So I think another piece of this was, um, and I was learning to write like very, very, very basic code when I was a little kid. Um, so so I think the technology piece of this comes from, from there. Um, I didn't major in computer science in college or anything like that. Um, but I, I was exposed to it very early and just, um, have been tinkering my whole life. So it was, it seems like it was this, um, purposeful, but also really beautiful matchup of your capacious intellect and curiosity and a mother who knew how to fuel it and not to censor what you were being given to stimulate you and cultivate you based along gender lines. I think that's right. Um, you know, my mom was a really really good teacher. She was in a public school, but she, um, uh, her focus was science and technology. um, (laughs) She She had uh, a role model right there. Well, yeah. And she, she did think she, she really believed that every kid learns differently and that the public school system is not set up to address every individual kid's needs. So instead she just like invented all these different programs. She built an outdoor lab at their school. Um, She just, you know, she was constantly coming up with new programs and new ways to to spark um, attention and excitement in kids. And I was also the beneficiary of that because I lived with her. (laughs) Um, So along with this um, rich stimulation that you received um, and the exposure to all these different things, you also then engage in a tech world that's predominantly male. You know, that's right. Now, um, I don't need to tell the people listening um, the grand challenges uh, that are gender-based. But you can affirm that they're real. I can, but I was, you know, I think I was raised in a household where gender never came up. So it just never, you know, my mother just raised me to be a very strong person and to speak my truth and ask questions, um, you know, and it never occurred to me. I, I didn't grow up in a house full of Barbies either, so it, <laughs> a lot of the gendered um, toys I know. weren't, you know, I, I, I wasn't surrounded by them. And I also have this uh, huge mop of very curly brown hair that my mother didn't know what to do with, so I had very short hair, um, and a lot of people thought I was a boy. Anyhow, this is all to say that um, I, I didn't grow up conscious of, of being a girl and that I would have to work harder or differently. Um, it was just, you know, our family motto was you put your head down and work comes before everything else. Um, so it know, was an ethic that was inculcated in your household. Yeah, very much so. But and it also sounds like you're, in, you're, you're driven internally. 
You're intrinsically motivated to learn these things and discover these things. This doesn't seem like a job that you have. No. In fact, I think uh, if the futurism stuff hadn't worked out and if there was a way for me to be a professional graduate student, I probably, that would have been a great job for me. (laughs) Right. Um, No, but to get back to the gender thing, you know, I think because I, I, I never had a sense that a woman couldn't do something. Um, and in fact, I know that at some point I had, cause I at one point wanted to be president when I grew up and it was never like, that would be amazing. You could be the first woman president. It was just like, great. If you're going to be president, we've got to reverse it. My mother, right? You got to reverse engineer that. So there were a couple of years where I was like a Senate page and we were building up my resume to get me, uh, you know, and to, and to just, like expose me as much as humanly possible. To oh my God! Government, we, and politics, and everything else. We recently did a show in the fall about how we get more women in politics, and she was so ahead of her time. And my mom, yes, in many ways she was. And because um, I know I grew up, I'm a little older than you are, um, and I had a grandmother who, in many ways, inspired me to be who I am today. But I also remember being told, "You can't do X because you're a woman." Mm. And it I literally never, ever heard that growing up from anybody. So when um, you started to go to work in these environments that many of which had to and probably still are um, overwhelmingly male, were there any um, things that you had to learn along the way or become sensitive to? Or did you just have to hold on to yourself? You know, this is the sort of strange reality that I deal with on a day to day basis. So. You know, I'm on. I'm in. I'm a member of a couple of women's groups of of executives where they sort of talk through some of the challenges that they're facing as as women. I haven't I haven't gone through a lot of those challenges. I haven't been on the um, in a professional environment. Now, writing the Acela back and forth to New York is a whole other situation, and I I routinely see men behaving badly. Um, I laugh, but it and it, but it's sad. But there's great truth to this. There is, and and I have witnessed more disgusting, gross behavior, um, and some of it towards me. You know, in a professional work environment where I'm a known entity going in, um, or I was at a big meeting with, I won't say with which company, but let's say it's a large investment bank, mm-hmm. um, and before it was my turn to sort of lead the part of the meeting. A few. It was all all dudes, all men, in like you know all men. I, the only women in the room were like helping to organize the event, um, and I think they thought that I was one of the help you know, like helper types. And he was trying to explain math to me. Oh, you're kidding me! No, and I just looked at him like he was from Mars, uh, and then didn't just I just ignored him. And then when I I sort of started to speak. Um, I was going deep. I was doing a deep dive into a regression analysis, which is a lot of math. And and kind (laughs) of a delicious um, thing to have on your agenda, given that content. Kind of a delicious thing to happen to be what you were there to talk about. Yeah, you know, and I, because I'm so conscious of what a lot of my friends go through, I make a huge point to, um, you know, sometimes probably to my own detriment, to, to, you know, if I'm in a room full of men, to help them understand that, um, I, you know, I'm probably one of the smartest people in the room, and that's okay, um, you know, and I'm here to help them, and we're all going to work together, and gender is not going to be a, a part of this. Well, the smartest um, person in the room also happens to be the smartest person on the air today, and that's Amy Webb, who's our guest today on Women at Work. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk more about forecasting, futurists, and what Amy can tell us about what lies ahead. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. We'll be back in a minute. 
You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, your host for today's show on the future. Um, We've been talking with Amy Webb who is astonishing in so many ways, a professional futurist and author of the newly released book, The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. If you'd like to join in the conversation, we really would love to have you join in. You can give us a call, ask any questions, either of Amy or of me. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Amy, welcome back to Women at Work. Thanks. Um, Before the break, we were talking uh, a little bit about um, the things that you've experienced professionally where you realized gender was an issue and how to navigate it. And when you and I had talked before, you said there's a particular area where you see um, opportunities trying to be created for women that women aren't necessarily seizing. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, I... I am not a public speaker as as my job, but I, I do, um, you know, probably speak a couple times a month, and I also organize a couple of events, um, you know. And I think there's no secret that a lot of business technology events um, have been pretty that there's not been very good gender parity. In fact, this this uh, I'm the only woman speaker at CES in my category. Really, uh, I'm at. Um, you know, and and not just gender diversity, but diversity in general, right? Of all so, types. So that's right. So um, and and the constant refrain is, I just couldn't find. We couldn't find anybody. We couldn't find any women to speak on this panel about blah, right? Whatever it might be. Um, and the thing is, you know, p- part of the reason for that is that people don't try. They tend. You know, this is what you and I talked about. Yes. And then, you know, the organizers. The easiest thing to do is to reach for the lowest hanging fruit. Um, in addition to the biggest names, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if your network is predominantly men, you're going to wind up reaching out to those to men. So you do have to put a lot of extra effort in. However, and the things that I organize, so this is my own my company's conference called the Future Today Summit. I also organize something called Spark Camp, um, which is an invitation-only thing that's been happening for like seven years, um, among others. Uh, it is very, very... so So... In our case, you know, we have built tools, we have built systems and ways to make sure that we are always at least 50% women um, and that we are, uh, you know, we, we have wide diversity in terms of age and race and, and uh, everything else. So, so if anybody is going to do well, it's going to be me. And here's what I've learned, um, that when those opportunities are extended to speak or to come to a meeting... Um, men get back first, always, with a yes or a no. Women, it is, you know, I wind up having to chase down. And not only do they not give me a yes or a no, um, but oftentimes I'll get a, a qualified yes. Yes, but uh, all these other conditions have to be met, right? <laughs> um, and then, uh, we, you know, there's always going to be some attrition. And invariably, and again, I've got data to prove this, um, the very first people, you know, the, the people who tend to drop out um, are women. 
uh, almost exclusively. So, and so the, the great challenge that I'm left with is uh, it's important for women to be at the table. It's important for women to be in the room, to, to be a part of that conversation. It's important for all these people saying it's hard to, you know, where are the women? We can't find them to stop, to, to like try harder, right? On the other hand, you got to show up. You've got to at least answer the email. And, if, and, if, and, you know, what I've started to do to tell my friends is um, if, if you are on the fence because logistics-wise, you don't know if you can physically be there, that's one thing. If you're on the fence because you lack the confidence, um, then it's time to, you know, just get over it and leave imposter syndrome at, at you know, at that's the door and say yes. Because say yes, and then don't drop out. Right? I was just going to ask you, because before I jump to um, the con- the things that I think are contributing to it, which include imposter syndrome, um, I was going to ask, is that what you think is behind this? Um, I think it, I think a lot of it is confidence. Now, in my, you know, I will say that I just violated my own, you know, so, so I got invited <laughs> to a conference um, to speak at something weeks ago, and I just literally... It happened like right before the holiday. My email won an autoresponder. I should be getting back to this guy, and I keep forgetting. And this is a reminder that I've got to get back to this guy and tell him no. But over, but you know, in my case, um, I say yes. You know, I make a quick decision. The answer is yes. The, and I've got kids, so it's not like um, I'm a single person with abundant free time at my disposal. <laughs> right. um, you know, but but I I understand as a conference organizer how hard it is. So you just get the personnel down. Um, and I also understand why people say that they can't find women. So I don't want to contribute to that. So I immediately say yes or I say no. And if I say no, my response is, thank you so much. Sorry, I can't participate. But here are three you know, very well-qualified people who I'd love for you to consider in my place. So and this I, is huge. So I want, yeah, to, and, I want to break this down for a minute. And just reiterate some of what you just said, because I think you're on to several really important things that dovetail with stuff we talk about all the time here on Women at Work. So one is clearly that no matter how busy you are, responding promptly um, is critically important just as a professional courtesy. But that the other part of it is we hold ourselves back when we don't believe that we're 100 percent ready in a way that men will jump forward and take the risk and believe that they can do it. And our doubts in ourselves will prevent us from seizing opportunities that are right in front of us. That's absolutely right. And then the other part of it is when there's an opportunity that's in front of us that we can't embrace, that's our opportunity to help give it to other worthy people who might not otherwise be considered. That's right. And I, you know, in my case, because I, I do organize a few events, I've got a nice database full of people that's tagged, and I can very quickly point to five people that can talk on any given subject. Um, but, but, you know, all of us, you know, networking is a part of what we do. So, you know, whatever system you're using to keep your people organized, um, just add a tab, you know, that, that tags them with, you know, this is somebody who could speak about, you know, whatever. Um, you know, and, and, and if you are not in a situation yet where you're being asked a lot to speak, but you would like to be asked a lot to speak, reach out to, to people who do get asked a lot to speak. I'm sure you have somebody in your circle and let them know, I'm, you know, just say, listen, I'm sure you can't be at everything. If you ever need somebody to sub in or, you know, I'd love to be recommended if, it, if there's something you can't make. Um, I've actually had several women um, 
you know, ask me and, and, I, and I, I recommend them out now. And that, again, is a really important piece of advice that um, may not be may not feel natural for a lot of people to have no, the boldness. No, competitive. To, yeah, yeah, and assertive yeah. in a good way, though. That's right. Well, you know, I think we manage our competitiveness differently. Um, and I will, I will be honest, the first time somebody mentioned that to me, my, I did bristle a little bit. I was like, oh, somebody trying to come in and you know, take over my, take my territory. <laughs> yeah. They um, inching in on your turf. <laughs> right. And then I, and then I sort of reminded myself, this is ridiculous. Of course not. Um, you know, and the more, again, the, the less that we can get people saying, you know, the, the less that people say just couldn't find a woman or, you know, women don't show up, the better it is going to be for all of us, you know, and every time a woman doesn't show up or cancels on the last minute, um, or doesn't answer the, an email that actually reflects badly on me too, me personally, even if I don't know that person, because I get lumped in with everybody else, uh, the, the, the group of women who don't show up, right, or whatever. The remarkable woman that we're talking with who does show up is Amy Webb, who's a professional futurist and author of the newly released book, The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. Amy, one of the things that we're doing right now is we're talking about the specific actions that we can take in our own lives to help women advance in the workplace. But I want to um, zoom out for a minute and, and go into that kind of bigger picture where you usually live, because um, there's some things I've got some questions about, and I'd love it if you can help me understand them and navigate them. I was, like many people, utterly unprepared for the election results. And along with it, um, and continually shocked by the way that social media and mainstream media were playing out in this dynamic. Um, it really surprised me on so many levels, particularly how unimportant traditional news media became, how powerful individually driven social media became, and what seems like a real backlash against feminism. Am I reading the signals correctly? Are you reading them differently? How are you making sense out of this? Sure. So, you know, I think that the... Um so neurologically, we are very much wired to recognize patterns it, uh, for, for reasons that make perfect sense biologically. The less brain energy we have to spend making a decision, the less overall energy we expend, the better it is for our bodies. So there's a whole reason why we like to, to not mess with the status quo. Um, you know, I, I think as much as it may feel because of social media and the listservs that we're on and, and, you know, every other reason, it may feel as though women um, have entered this new era with where everything is equal and we are, you know, the, the seal, shattering the glass ceiling is just a matter of time. You know, that this huge disappointment everybody felt because it, it seemed like a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton was going to become the first woman president has to do with this um, status quo. It, you know, we, we live, and I do too, um, in these little microcosms where mm -hmm. our own voices echo a lot. What we forget is that, um, you know, right now, the majority of leadership positions are filled by men. And changing, dramatically changing the status quo by introducing more gender parity necessarily means changes in other ways in places like home, right? Like who's going to do the laundry, right. um, you know, those sorts of things, which may seem pretty provincial, 
uh, and like it's the 1950s, but there's a reason that, that the 1950s and this bygone era was such a, was such a trend. That, and the, by that trend, I mean like trendy trend. Right. Um, that, was, uh, that was talked about so much during this election cycle because people don't want change. And um, I, as a futurist, you know, I, I don't really care about polls. And for me, um, I, you know, I hoped Hillary Clinton would become our next president, but I never, ever thought that she, had a, that she was a lock. Uh, regardless of what the polls said. And that's because, um, you know, the, those numbers are static snapshots, but they don't necessarily reflect behavior. Um, you know, and I think the reality is that most people don't want change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that probably includes a lot of women who are masters of their own domestic domains. Um, and, a, you know, having a woman president for them, may have um, evoked an image of this mass exodus away from the home and into the workplace. You know, it's it's not as though this is the first time that we've been through this. You know, in the late 1800s, 1920s, mm-hmm. you know, the 60s, we're just at another point in this cycle, and, and hopefully, thankfully, we're further along. But again, I, I think that everybody thought this was a big foregone conclusion, and gender parity is here to stay, and we're going to the half the Fortune right. 500 with women CEOs, you know, we're nowhere near that yet. Right. All right. I think some of us, I didn't think it was a foregone conclusion, but I thought it, if I wanted it to happen, hoped it would happen. And I thought that if it did, that would then lead us to that kind of parody. Mm-hmm. And so now it, it frightens me more that it's farther away and, and that it's actually moving farther away as a result of this. Well, I think that that's how we feel. But again, I'm, you know, my, I, I, I want to see evidence and data, right? <laughs> so, um, and, and that's, a hard, that's a hard one to, to figure out. So I think that it feels as though we have taken this giant step in a different direction. Um, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. What, what I have found to be true is that our public outcries um, on social media and what the, the behavior that we see by you know, certain people mm-hmm. um, in, in these elevated positions tend, tend still to be outliers, but they don't necessarily reflect the tectonic changes in our society and culture. You know, one of the things that I loved in the book, which I, I do want to heartily recommend, it was approachable and fascinating, and my brain's been buzzing ever since. Um, you talk a lot about the, retel- the, the reptilian brain, our fear of change, but what happens when we say, we don't, that thing is so bad, it will never happen. That thing's so foreign to us, it will never happen. And so we, it's almost like we become ostriches and put our heads in the sand. As opposed to saying, no, change is happening. It will have good things and bad things, and we have to try and understand it better and prepare for it. Um, That's right. You know, and I will tell all of your listeners right now the dirty little secret of every futurist, whether or not they're willing to admit it. (laughs) And that is that literally none of us knows the future. (laughs) So I don't know. I literally don't know. Um, I would never give you a definitive answer as to what that change, you know, what, what's coming next. Right. So don't call your brokers as a result of this conversation. That's right. Um, but what I can tell you is that we all have to start feeling much more comfortable with ambiguity. And that's, that's difficult, especially if you're a business person, especially if you're in a, in a risk management position. Um, because for many people, 
um, that am- that ambiguity, that lack of knowing a definitive answer is, is anathema, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. to like being a strong, um, you know, responsible business person. But the reality is that these technology cycles are moving quickly. We have what is the equivalent of a black swan who's just been elected to president, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we have a, a, an, a what I think are really an unprecedented number of unknowns. So given that so much is up in the air, the very best, you know, and, and I cannot tell you what's going to happen next for scientific reasons, right? There, there right. are reasons why I can't do that. The next best thing that we can do is to equip ourselves with the tools of a futurist to try to map out where we really are in the present, which is about looking in places at the fringe where you wouldn't normally look, in order to um, think through the likely scenarios for the future. It's, you know, and, and it's something that anybody can do, but what it does is it forces us to turn off that reptilian portion of our brain and to stop ignoring, uh, or, you know, stop ignoring things, or worse, to, you know, there's a ton of companies that feel like they're being left behind, and so they make these rash decisions. Apple is a great uh, example of this. <laughs> um, you know, and they make these ridiculous changes, or they start adopting, or they make, they make acquisitions um, that make absolutely no sense. Um, you know, so, so you have to have a plan. You have to have a, a thinking framework, and that's really what the book is, is for. And, and it clearly delivers that. One of the things that you won't be surprised, I think about often, is um, the future of feminism, diversity, inclusion, not just in the workforce, but in society at large. And on one hand, I see companies who are embracing that as a core value. It's actually given me some hope that even if the government doesn't think in a, 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 a forward-thinking, futurist kind of way, um, about harnessing as much talent as possible, the businesses may. And then at the same time, it goes back to the medium is the message mm-hmm. that what I see on media, um, the ubiquity of porn, Instagram, the Kardashians, um, reality TV, the way that um, a presidential candidate could be viewed as being a predator and then be elected. I'm wondering... What is that telling us? What do we do with that? You know, um, so a couple of things. Uh, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that change, when you're in the midst of it, um, always feels faster than it than it actually is. Okay, so, fair uh, enough. <laughs> right, so, and especially if you're thinking through pop culture references, mm-hmm. um, you know, I uh, I was a big George Michael fan in my first book. There's a lot of George Michael <laughs> references, uh, and I was devastated to learn of his loss. I remember I Want Your Sex coming out. I remember the massive argument that I had with my mother about that song. Did uh, you adore it? I was too young to really understand at that point. Um, you know, and how that, you know, that, that song... Uh, rocked, you know, I mean, it was, it was uh, banned on the radio. It was a huge, big deal. And if you think about that song within the context of what a Kardashian is just doing on Instagram. I know. <laughs> um, but again, I, it, it, you know, this, this, these change, the, the change happens um, sort of more slowly. Again, t- the, so time is sort of irrelevant. And this is a really great analogy to think through how technology affects and how, how the future sort of comes to us 
for everybody that that time feels different. If you think about it, the future is simultaneously, you know, 17 years, 365 days, two hours, and one second from now, right? Um, so, so if you start thinking about time less in a chronologic way, but more in a um, a measurement of change way, mm-hmm. um, I think you can start to understand how we arrived at this point where some of us are mystified by what seems like feminism going backwards, mm-hmm. uh, and others of us feel like we've arrived and it's feminism's moment, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it helps clarify how we could put somebody who's, you know, repeatedly harassed women into the highest political office in our country. I think it helps us understand some of these things. Um, you know, now whether or not, you know, where we go from here, the, the answer to that question is never backwards. So we're never going to roll back in any sort of puritanical way. It never happens that way, right? All, all we do is go forward. It may be difficult for us to imagine what could possibly happen next, but I can promise you that if you were to get into a time machine and go backwards to, I don't know, the year 2007 and, and tell the story of where we are, what happened with this political election and the fact that our our newly elected president is using Twitter instead of traditional press conferences <laughs> right. um, to stoke the ire of, you know, China, like that would have been inconceivable, right? So, so again, it would have been inconceivable to me 18 months ago. Right, but it's but it's happened. Right. So now, 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 here's the thing: you can't predict. So I would not have said 18 months ago Trump is going to be all over. Actually, I probably would have. But um, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 instances of what happens, um, no. But the profligation of things like fake news, mm-hmm. right? The the writing is on the wall for a lot of these things, like fake news, like the rise of Trump, and and. Um, you know, nobody should have written him off. If again, like I, I saw this very, very clearly. He was a, he was absolutely a, a serious candidate. Um, but if you are not doing, if you're not using these tools, the tools of a futurist, you don't, you don't. These, these, these. What should be signals are really just noise, and so you ignore them. Rather and, than and then, and then preparing you for them, surprised. you wind up surprised. And the whole point of my job is to make the future more boring for my clients. (laughs) Well, in the few minutes that we have left, Amy, one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, we can look at these these intersections as um, dangerous or promising. We can dread the future. We can be afraid of it. We can have great hope for it. Um, Well, you did provide some cautionary contextual information in the book. You seem fundamentally hopeful. I am. And I, I've, you know, I think that's one of the quirks of the people who choose my profession, or I guess the profession chooses them, is that most of us tend to feel, tend to see doom and gloom in everything, but we're optimistic that we can do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, how can you not be optimistic, right? If you accept the fact that we are not robots, and that you know, we are not just part of some tapestry that's already been woven. If you accept the fact that um, the future has not yet happened and that, as MIT professor Edward Lorenz once said, only one thing can happen next, then how can you not be optimistic? Because what that all implies is that the future doesn't just show up fully formed. It's something that each and every one of us together is creating in the present. 
that is beautifully put. Um, to that end, a, a small note, a shout out to Stephen Dallas, who called, but he couldn't stay on the phone. And he had a question. He wanted he, he pointed out that perhaps the rise of Trump and the fact that he's labeled as a predator might actually bring more awareness to gender equality issues and make things better. So between the hopeful act of planning for the future and the wisdom and sensitivity and complexity that you honor in the process, Amy, we couldn't be more grateful that you're doing the work that you are and that you joined us on Women at Work today. Thank you. And I just love to encourage other women to, this is a great profession. Um, so I'd love to see more and more women uh, take up the, the baton and join the field. Here, here. Um, that was Amy Webb, futurist and founder of the Future Today Institute and author of The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. I'd like to thank Amy Webb. And of course, Allie Freed, who's sitting in for Patty Hall in the booth today, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. You can also check us out on SoundCloud. That's SiriusXM.com backslash business radio or SoundCloud.com backslash women at work and look for Laura's arrow. Join us next week where we'll be talking with Pam Borton, Division I basketball coach and author of On Point, a coach's game plan for life, leadership, and performing with grace under fire. Thanks so much for listening to us on Women at work on business radio powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow and as always it's been a treat to talk with you. I'll be here next week. Thanks everyone and take care.